Welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd the Third. I'm Sariel, and my pronouns are they them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he him. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode fifty-nine, Ardashir the First. Oh, the first of the Sassanid rulers. New dynasty. The beginning new of a dynasty, new dynasty. New dynasty. <laughs> The reason why we didn't have Parthian sources. <laughs> mm, true. Because they are all erased for a new dynasty. But the bright thing is that we have a lot of new sources here. And a lot of these sources are going to accompany us until the end of the podcast. So that'll be fun. Oof. We get to introduce you to these people, see what they're like. And we get to hear fun stories <laughs> about Ardashir and what did he do and what was his deal and how did he win. What happened? Interesting. And interesting. All the cool art he made about himself being cool. Because you might as well. Yeah. If you can, you know. Yeah, you'll see. All right, so I think we can just start straight up with a brief recap of what happened last episode, our last Arsak at Volagasis VI. Well, what happened is that Volagasis originally was King of Kings. Then the Romans slightly attacked him. His brother rebelled and took half of the empire with him. Then the brother was killed by Ardashir, who then took over the empire. Volagasis desperately tried to fight back, but then was eventually cornered and killed by the forces mm. of Ardashir, who thus inaugurated a new empire and confined the Arsakids to Armenia, where they will no longer be playing chess with Armenia. They will be the ones being played chess with. Mm. So there we go. Sad fate, but somehow... Uh fit one to how it went i guess yeah it feels like a karmic punishment yeah like you were pushing around armenia for centuries now you get to be the ones being pushed around it feels fair but okay so serial great news with ardashir we go back to persia for the first time since vodfordad dang <laughs> that was a while ago hooray but yeah essentially Let's have a quick look at what happened in Persia proper since Badfordad II was conquered and taken over. You would think, since this is like an um, Persian Empire podcast, we would like be around there more often. Yeah, but they've been very quiet recently because they were a vassal kingdom and they didn't rebel. They just rebelled here at the end of all things, but not much else. So what happened in the meantime well, since it's from the Parthian period, we have very few sources. <laughs> I, we should just have a soundbite that is that. <laughs> yes. Because at this point, like... Just take a shot every time we say we have few sources. Mm, don't, that would be, be dangerous. <laughs> I feel yes, like that would be dangerous. Yes. Bad times. But yeah, so what happened in Persia at the time? There were several vassal kings with some names from Achaemenid kings. So there were several Dariuses. And Ardashir himself is just the name Artaxerxes, but 500 mm. years later and more Iranian. So it's just transformed across time, and that's what we get. And then there are other also interesting names from Iranian mythology and uh, mytho history, which are quite fun. Mm -hmm. 
And well, as I mentioned, we didn't really have much from Persia. It was just its own little vassal kingdom, not really making much trouble, just continuing onwards without making much note of itself. But in recent times, it looks like there was a weakening of the authority of the king of Persia, with most large cities in the region becoming basically their own states, Hmm. with only nominal obedience to the Parthian king of kings. So Persia itself is fragmenting. So out of this period of crisis, so emerges our boy Ardashir. So who is he? Where does he come from? What's his deal? So Ardashir was born sometime in the late 2nd century. Some sources say 180, but it's not clear. And there is lots of mystery around him. And we have a few versions about the family he's from. What is his family history? And, well, this also allows us to introduce a few of the sources we're going to be using. Oh, fun. So our first source is Al-Tabari, who is one of the most prominent historians of the Islamic Golden Age and a polymath writing an extensive history from the dawn of creation to the 10th century when he was living. You know, just something to do on a Thursday. Yes. And the good thing is that, the good thing for us is that there he uses some lost royal Sassanid chronicles as his sources. So it's not really firsthand information, but it's as close as we can get. These sources were eventually lost because Mm. the empire doesn't last forever. Spoiler alert. But Al-Tabari was able to use them as his sources. Nice. And tell us the stories that the Sassanids told themselves. So Al-Tabari tells us that Ardashir came from a noble Persian family where his grandfather was a man called Sasan, from which the family. Hmm. And according to this story, Sasan was the guardian of the Temple of Fire of Anahita in Persia, and he was a descendant of the mythical founders, while on his grandmother's side, he was descended from the Persian royal family. Mm -hmm. And, well, this Sasan had a son called Papak, who was then the father of Ardashir. We then get a second version of this from a dedication made by Ardashir's son. And in this dedication, Sasan is called a lord, but Papak isn't described as the son of Sasan. So it might have been like an ancestor further back. We're not sure. And then third, we have a more poetic version, which comes from two sources. First, a Middle Persian romance called The Book of the Deeds of Ardashir. So does what it says on the tin. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is echoed in the Shahnameh, which is going to be another source that we'll carry on until the end of the podcast. Have you heard of the Shahnameh before, Serial? I have heard of the Shahnameh because, you know, our good friend Plumas often refers to it and reads from it and lets us all know what an incredible book it is. So, Yes, so Plumas, who we had on last week, does excellent Readings of the Shahnameh, if you want to follow, please do. They are excellent. But just to give a quick recap on what the Shahnameh is, it is the longest epic poem composed by a single person. It is twice the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. And it is absolutely massive. And it is by an author... I love that two out of those three facts were, it's a big book. It's big, it's chunky, (laughs) yes. And yeah, it was uh, written by Ferdowsi who is this uh, Iranian author from the Middle Ages. 
and he describes the pre-Islamic past of Iran with an early mythical stage, with a lot of heroic kings and great warriors and tragic deaths and all that. He also has stories on Alexander that uh, we mentioned during our intelligence speech conference this year. And then later on, towards the end of the book, he talks about the Sassanids, or at least some of the Sassanids, not all of them, but he talks about them, and there the book moves more into history. It's still an epic poem, of course, so there is poetic license taken, but it tries to at least draw from historical sources. Okay, so this more poetic version says that Papak was a local ruler who gave his daughter in marriage to Sasan. Why did he give his daughter in marriage to Sasan? Well, apparently he had found out that Sasan was a descendant of Darius III from the old Achaemenid days. Hmm. And this was going to give great legitimacy to their offspring, which, lo and behold, is Ardashir. So he is descended from the ancient Persian line, and he has all this authority on himself. But then the story becomes a little bit weird because Sasan disappears from the story and Papak is treated as Ardashir's father, so it's unclear. So, okay, so who should we trust for this? There are different ways we can look at this. Some people trust Al-Tabari more because he is, you know, he's not the poetic version. He's ostensibly trying to actually be a story and he's not trying to write a good story. He's trying to mm. write what happened. It's a bit more objective. Yeah. While others suggest that maybe Papak adopted Sasan's son Ardashir and that clear things up because Papak is still Ardashir's father but he had adopted another son's man for legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Which we've seen the Romans do, right? Yeah, like... it happens. And others still say that Sasan is sort of like Achaemenes at the time where we don't know anything at all about him, but he is just the guy that gives the name to the dynasty. So some people thought it was important at some point, but we have no clue. And uh, yeah, so this is roughly where we are. What we know is that Ardashir's father is called Papak, and he is religiously and politically important in Persia, but he's not a king or anything. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we also know that Ardashir had an older brother called Shapur, who was expected to be first in line for the throne. So we'll see how that plays out. So what happens is, well, first of all, I need to mention that Al-Tabari, to mention the time after the Parthians, he calls it the time of the party kings. Huh? Which is just a great line. Okay. After the time of the party kings. Why? Well, apparently, it's not really a mistranslation, but it's a translation from the Arabic into the version I was reading, where party kings just meant, like, the petty kings, the kings that were, like, small and separate. So it was sort of like saying that, you know, the Parthians and the Seleucids weren't as good as the Achaemenids. They weren't this universal empire. They were mm. this smaller little group of people. So, the party kings. And apparently the word is taifa, like the ones in Spain. Oh, so it's just like okay. those little kingdoms. I see. So, there we go. But in any case, so, according to Altamari, Ardashir was given as a ward an adopted son to the commander of a castle. So, Papak just sent him off to make his experience in this little castle. And uh, when the commander of the castle died, Ardashir became lord of the castle. Nice. This is also when he received a prophecy of his future greatness and an angel that told him to prepare to become the ruler. But Ardashir remained humble. He was like, you know, prophecies yeah. happen. Don't want to get overexcited and then it doesn't work out. It's bad. 
you know, we've all learned in class that like when you get approached by an angel to <laughs> tell you that you're going to be ruler of the world, like it is kind of expected societally. It's more moral to like be humble and react. Like, like we all know this, right? We've all been taught this lesson. Yeah, we've all been to prophecy class. We know how to react to it. But yeah, so now Ardashir has a little castle, and he decides to slowly extend his authority over the local nobles. He kills those that resist, assimilates those who will. So he slowly expands, and then he writes to his father, Papak, and says, Hey, kill the local king of Persia, and ask the king of kings, Volagasis, to make your son king. So Ardashir's brother, Shapur, can become king of Persia. So Papak does kill the local king of Persia, and uh, he asks Vologases, can you make my son Shapur king of Persia? But by that time, the king had changed to Artabanus IV, the rebel king. And Artabanus refused and said that, no, Papak and Ardashir, you killed the rightful sub-king. You are now both rebels, so get ready to be fought. One of the interesting things about this story is that Papak isn't supporting Ardashir for king. He's supporting Shapur, who hadn't really had his own authority. So it might be that he was trying to have the brothers have sort of equal powers and not have one entirely overwhelm the other. Or maybe he was trying to follow Shapur's birthright as an eldest son. We don't know, but, you know, in any case, the proposal was refused. So a rebellion started up, and Papak took over the region and the majority of the kingdom of Persia. And once he did this, he declared independence from the Parthian Empire. He said, okay, we're our new thing, we're restarting the Persian Empire, let's go. Now the timeline here is a little bit unclear, because we don't know if this is the original rebellion under Volagasis V, that we saw a couple of episodes ago, or if it's the new rebellion under Volagasis VI and Artabanus IV. So it's unclear if this is just one long rebellion or if the first rebellion was suppressed and then this is the second rebellion that actually succeeded. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It happens. Some rebellion happened. Yeah, some rebellion happened. Rebelled. Persia declared independence. Huzzah. Mm -hmm. But then the next few years are a little bit obscure as we don't have many records of them. But when we emerge from this fog, we find that Papak has died. And has been succeeded by Shapur, who is now the king of Persia. Shapur then decided to ask his brother Ardashir, who owned a lot of castles and lands, to show homage at court and show his submission. But Ardashir refused. And so Shapur decided to declare war on his brother and try and fight him. And, uh, you know, decide once and for all who should rule. And how do you think this ended, Serial? Whenever you ask me these things, I'm like, how do you want me to... <laughs> No, I don't... What do you think? What is your idea? Do you see uh, an assassination, a wild battle? What is in your I mind? I feel like it would be kind of sad, but also funny that, like, we didn't have to declare this war, but we did, and then we lost. Yeah. And now there's a new king. Well, sort of. Because one day, Shapur and his army was camped under a crumbling old building... And a loose piece of masonry fell down, hit Shapur on the head, and killed him. Oh no! <laughs> so, civil war over. Oh my god. So, well, huzzah! That was quick. Yeah. This sounds very convenient, so might just be the histories 
trying to not make Ardashir look like he murdered his brother. True. Yeah. Which might be it's like, oh yeah, totally, a brick fell on his head. Oops. His it was neck an snapped. It happens. How clumsy. Oh well. Ardashir's king now. Yeah. Nobody question it. Yeah, nobody Thanks. look at it. It'll be fine. But anyway, all of Ardashir's remaining brothers offered him the crown, and so at last Ardashir is now king of Persia, at least. Oh, he is now qualified for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he gets in charge of the new kingdom in the year 212, which is when we start counting him from. Although, interestingly enough, some reports say that Ardashir later killed his brothers for fear of a murder plot, that they were trying to overthrow him. It's unclear if there actually was a murder plot or if this actually happened, but it is attributed to him. But, yeah, as we mentioned before, we have declared independence from the Parthian Empire, and so we're at war with them. So Ardashir slowly expands Persia, and by 224, he has control of Persia, Elamis, and parts of central Iran, Mm -hmm. and he has forced several smaller Parthian vassals to submit to him. But the most important one of all is that the noble house of Suren, that had Surena, the guy who defeated Crassus in it, Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who traditionally crowned Parthian kings. Yes, yes, I remember them. These people have sided with Ardashir. So that is a big boost of legitimacy if one noble family is going towards you and will take you. Mm-hmm. And we're told by Altabari, although this sounds a bit mythical, that the Parthian king Artabanus IV sent Ardashir a letter calling him a bandit and sending a vassal king to crush him. Mm-hmm. In response, Ardashir wrote letters claiming that he was chosen by God to take the throne of all of Iran, and he will send Artabanus' head as an offering to the fire temple he had built. So, them's fighting words. Hmm. This is also a good time for war against the Parthians, because Caracalla, as we saw before, was ravaging the western provinces, and this is the fourth time this century that Mesopotamia is being raided. It's not fun. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that there was another civil war and everything had been going a little bit downhill in the last couple kings had convinced a lot of the nobles that this system wasn't working and they were happy to try for a new dynasty and see how that turned out. Mm -hmm. Also, this is almost certainly mythical, but I have to tell you a story from the Shahnameh where apparently there was a slave in Artabanus' household called Golnar. And Artabanus, the Parthian king, was in love with this Golnar. But she was in love with Ardashir. Hmm. So she ran away with him and tried to go away to Persia and escape. So with Golnar and Ardashir running away together, Artabanus sent soldiers to try and catch up with them. But when the soldiers came back with reports, they said that a mountain sheep, or an eagle in another version, was running after the two. Hmm. So what does that mean? Well, this sheep was apparently the right to rule, or the far. Right, of course. How didn't I think of that? Yes, simple. Which was running after Ardashir, and eventually, once it caught up with Ardashir, it finally bestowed upon him the right to rule. So this divine right that had been with the Parthians for centuries has finally escaped them and reached Ardashir, who now has it and is now fully in charge. But in any case... Once Ardashir returned to Persia, he defeated the Parthian army that was sent against him. So he wrote once more to Artabanus saying, Hey, listen, let's not beat around the bush. 
choose a field of battle and I will beat your ass. <laughs> okay, good. Let's go. Let's get this over with. So the two sides finally met on the field of battle in Hormizdagan in Media on the 24th of April 224. With the Parthians having more soldiers overall, but they were tired from a long march, mm-hmm. and the Sassanids had Ardashir and his divine <laughs> right. Right. The Sassanids had, you know, magic. Yes, had plot armor. <laughs> yes. And, well, the battle was a crushing victory for the new Sassanid Empire, with Ardashir killing Artabanus personally and assuming the title of Shahanshah on the field of battle, making this the first year of the Sassanid era. Huzzah. We have won. And we are told by another Arab historian called Al-Masudi that Ardashir gave the speech upon becoming king after killing his rival. He said, We will devote all our care to the maintenance of justice. We will extend our protection to all our subjects. Great buildings will be built, fertility will be restored to the land, and our peoples will be governed with benevolence. We will restore prosperity to our states and to our peoples the goods which violence has stolen from them, so that the birds themselves may enjoy complete security. Peoples, my justice will be the same for the powerful and for the weak, for the small and the great. His judgments will be blessed and his worship respected. My government will deserve your approval and you will always find my actions to agree with my words. So, that's quite nice. No bad. It's a good campaign speech. It's unlikely to be a real verbatim speech, but, you know, we see that there's the establishment of a new dynasty, which, very much like Cyrus, was born from a rebellion, but it is marked as being more legitimate than the previous one due to its moral virtue. Like, we won because we are the better side morally. The Parthians have been making a mess of things, we are now here to fix everything. Mm. So yes, we rebelled, but we had the right to do it. Well, it's like we rebelled for a reason, right? Yeah, basically. It's not saying I rebelled for power. We're saying I saw that there was a problem, so I rebelled, and now I'm going to fix the empire Mm. once and for all. Let's see. And from this, we also get a very cool relief showing this battle, where Ardashir is shown killing Artabanus, while Ardashir's son, Shapur, is shown killing Artabanus' prime minister. So together they're shown killing the old order and bringing in the new. And I will show you this in the Face of Faces section, and it will be on the website when you Ah, see it. And another great relief, which is what we're going to use as the Face of Faces portrait directly, Mm -hmm. is a great commemoration of the victory. And it's a relief made at Naksharostam, which we last saw as the place where all the tombs of the Achaemenid kings are. So, very symbolic. And in this relief, Ardashir is on horseback, and in front of him is the high god of Mazdaism, Ahura Mazda, mm-hmm. who is the god of justice and order and good. And they're both on horseback, and Ahura Mazda is giving Ardashir a ring that symbolizes the right to rule. So Ardashir is taking the right to rule from divinity. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, beneath the hoofs of the horse of Ahura Mazda, there's Ariman, which is the chaotic opposite of Ahura Mazda. So he's not exactly representing evil, but more chaos and disorder. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Ardashir has Artabanus under the hooves of his horse. 
So Ardashir, as a sign of order and stability, is defeating the chaotic influence of the past mm -hmm. Parthians. And at the same time, he's receiving the right to rule. And it's also interesting that the horses crushing the enemies is a typically Roman bit of iconography, so there might mm -hmm. be some contamination there. And another very interesting thing is that Ahura Mazda is depicted as the king in the reliefs of Persepolis. So it's almost as if Ardashir was gaining the right to rule from the old Achaemenid kings whose mm -hmm. tombs he had made the relief under. So he's doing a lot to try and legitimize himself and start this new mm -hmm. dynasty off very well. So, okay, we've made these reliefs, we've won, but Ardashir still needs to conquer the rest of the empire, make sure that it is all stable. So he moves west. He has a formal coronation in Tessaphon two years after this great battle, just about when Volagasis VI was being hunted down in his remaining strongholds. Although it's likely that Ardashir had another coronation back in Persia at the temple that his ancestors were guardians of, just for traditional purposes. And for an extra bit of legitimacy, it looks like Ardashir married an Arsakid princess. Mm -hmm. It's unclear if she is directly the daughter of Artabanus or if she's a more distant relative. But in any case, this gives us great legitimacy because you can just claim that, yes, we rebelled, but we're also part of the dynasty. So we're starting a new thing, but we're still legitimate that way. Mm -hmm. And some later sources claim that Ardashir's heir, Shapur, was the child of this union, but Shapur was already an adult by this point, mm -hmm. so it's unlikely so he was really. born yeah. from time travel. So there we are. <laughs> and yeah, at this point, most of the other Parthian noble families either submitted or were crushed. One of the ones that were crushed was the Karen family, which was almost exterminated, which was just left with a few surviving people to limp along. So we'll still see them for a while. I mean, I've seen them in my research, and my research mm -hmm. is like 300 years ahead. So Ooh, cool. they're still around, but they are definitely being greatly diminished in power. Mm -hmm. But at this point, Serial, there's some trouble. Can you guess where the trouble comes from? Is it Rome? Almost. Is it Armenia? Yes, it is. Of course. Yeah. I was like, well, it's either Armenia or the Romans having something to say about Armenia. So, yeah. It looks like the Arsakid king of Armenia had decided that, okay, if the empire in Iran is unstable, he might be able to take control of the empire and make his own dynasty. Why not? He is an Arsakid. He has that right. He could do it. So it looks like he invades the empire with a coalition of nomadic Alans. Hello, Alans. <laughs> Gotta love the Alans. And while Ardashir was off in the east doing what we'll see, it looks like the Armenians managed to reach Tessaphon, but they were ultimately repulsed when Ardashir returned. Ardashir then tried to conquer Armenia itself, but it looks like he was repelled by the Arsakids that were still there. So Armenia is still going to remain Arsakid for a while longer. We're also told that Ardashir tried to besiege Hatra, which, if you remember, was the city that bravely resisted Trajan and Severus and had mm -hmm. been unconquered. Well, it looks like Hatra still manages to resist Ardashir as well. It looks like they're sort of trying to be either independent or loyal to the Parthians that are still around. Mm -hmm. So, who knows? But in any case, Ardashir, I mentioned, has gone to the east. That's because he wants to take the east of the empire where he took the remaining Parthian lands and he went as far east as Bactria and 
took the important trading city of Merv in modern Turkmenistan. And interestingly enough, he faced the Indo-Parthian kingdoms that had still survived between Sistan and the Indus Valley. And we're not really sure what had happened before due to a lack of sources, but remember with the Kushans and the Indo-Parthians, there was a whole mess. So it looks like the Parthian border had been seriously frayed. But now Ardashir is going there and establishing his own empire and making sure that it all works out. Although interestingly enough, it looks like there was a local Indo-Parthian ruler who claimed the title of King of Kings and may have been trying to eat up the eastern portion of the Parthian Empire, but Ardashir managed to win a great victory and bring them all into the fold. So, good. Another interesting fact about the Indo-Parthians is that the Sassanids might actually have been Indo-Parthians originally. So they might have come from that area because there's a lot of similar iconography around and the name Sasan isn't typically Persian, but several mm-hmm. Indo-Parthian kings call themselves Sasan. Hmm. So it could be that this is where they're coming from. Also, the Shahnameh claims that Sasan fled to India to escape Alexander the Great after the death of Darius. So that might also be a, a vague memory of this uh, more Eastern origin. Evidence is not conclusive, but it's interesting to look at it. But another very interesting thing is that Ardashir, far from surrendering to the Kushan kings like the Parthians had done, Ardashir manages to go all the way to the Kushans and force them to pay tribute to this new Sassanid empire. Mm -hmm. So we've reversed the previous situation that existed, and this was further consolidated by Ardashir's son Shapur, but now there is a start. We have... The fact that the eastern border is stable and we've basically reconquered a lot of land and the Kushans are paying us money not to attack them. So, good. Ardashir then managed to go all the way to the northern coast of Arabia, so he gained full control of the Persian Gulf, which had been sort of tenuously gained by Volagasis IV, but later lost by his successors. So, okay. At last, we have conquered an empire. In the west, we reach all the way to Armenia. In the east, we reach all the way to India. In the south, we reach all the way to the northern coast of Arabia. Great. This is going well. So, what will Ardashir do with this new empire? Well, according to the Shahnameh, Ardashir is very Cyrus-like because he encourages his men to be brave. He rewards valor, punishes the wicked. He gives charity to those in need and makes sure to surround himself with wise people who make sure that the empire is governed as well as possible. So he doesn't just do what he (laughs) says and that's it. He makes sure to have the support of others. And yeah, this is the Shahnameh tradition where it's very likely that this is maybe a mixing of the tradition of Cyrus with the new founder of a dynasty. But in general, you can assume that the state propaganda is trying to make sure that Ardashir is seen as well as possible, that he's doing Mm -hmm. as good a job as possible. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't actually doing a good job, because as we will see, he introduced several useful reforms to governing the empire that will serve to sort of get it out of the rut that the Parthians had fallen into for a little bit. So what happened is that first Ardashir saw that the Parthian model had issues. Can you think of which issues the Parthian model had, Serial? If you were Ardashir, what would you want to fix from the Parthian model? Oh, God, empire? the nobles. Yes. The influence that's of one the nobles, of please. <laughs> that is I'm one of them. I'm glad we all Cyril. agree that this is the problem. Yes. 
Ardashir looks at the empire and sees that we have many vassal kings and many noble families that are very good to use when you have a strong king. Like, they're very efficient that way. It doesn't force you to micromanage. They're doing the thing. You just need to tell them what to do and they do it. But as we've seen countless times, when you have a weak king, they do whatever they want. They just do what suits them and that's it. And then the kingdom suffers. So Ardashir decided that the empire needs to be reformed, so it works. So since he was conquering the empire anyway, he pulled a Darius the Great and suppressed most of the local kings to ensure that the empire is more centralized and bureaucratic. So a lot of the local vassal kings, if we don't really need you, you're gone. You're just mm. being absorbed into the empire. So yeah, the empire is now more bureaucratic in both the administration and the army. But to be fair, this doesn't really mean that everything changed overnight. Ardashir is mostly focusing on centralization when he could. Whenever he had to make a choice, he went for the centralizing option. Mm -hmm. Presumably, he allowed his supporters to maintain their privileges while taking over those who had sided with Artabanus or just generally resisted the new regime. So, you know, if a noble family sided with him straight away, they get to keep their privileges. If a noble family made him work for it, then they would get a lot of their privileges revoked. So that helps a bit. But on the downside, it means that some nobles still have privileges. And one of our kings, yeah. about 30 episodes down the line, will go for the nuclear option against the nobles. I can't wait to tell you about him. He's great. Oh, I am excited. <laughs> but yeah, the nuclear option against the nobles is just, wow, I didn't expect you to go there, but... Good for you. Sure, let's try. Mm -hmm. But also, Ardashir realizes that he might need some vassal kings to administer the empire. It's very large. He can't be everywhere at once. So what he does is he institutes this new system. He institutes a system where vassal kings are appointed by the king of kings, and they're essentially just glorified governors. And what he does is he appoints all his sons to different roles in ruling the empire. So, A, they get experience, and B, all these sons are given titles in order of power as the order of succession. So, the eldest son, Shapur, who is going to succeed, has the biggest title, and then mm -hmm. all the other ones have smaller titles, so they are still governing, there are still yes. spares just in case, but they won't be able to rebel against the guy who's supposed to succeed, because he already has enough power. So, that's very nice. And we're also told that Ardashir set about refounding eight cities. So all of them were called some variation of Ardashir. So, you know, the glory of Ardashir or Ardashir is glorious. That's the name of the city. There we go. And they served as administrative centers to gather taxes directly for the king, rather than relying on the local nobles to do all the work and have the associated leverage. And among the cities, there was Seleucia, which had terribly decayed and been sacked four times in the last century, which was refounded by Ardashir as Ve Ardashir, which just means Ardashir city. Although, as I mentioned before, the nobles still are around, there still are important families, and we still maintain the Achaemenid and Parthian structure of seven core noble families, five of which were of Parthian origin. So, a lot of the noble families are still Parthian, but there's a core of Persia now that is in charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, 
we mentioned the Achaemenids, how do they connect themselves to the Achaemenid legacy? Well, since the Sassanids were from Persia, they present claims to the old Achaemenid legacy and also their mm-hmm. territory in the West. According to Altabari, to avenge the blood of his cousin Darius, whom Alexander had fought and murdered. Really, like, reaching back there. Yeah, Truly. they are trying to draw their legitimacy back. Although, based on the information we have, it looks like Ardashir had a more mythical view of the Achaemenids. Mm-hmm. So, sort of like what we have in the Shaname, where it's like, there were past mythical kings who basically ruled the entire world, and then things have been downhill from there. Mm, so, it doesn't look like he's actually looking at, you know, Darius the Great or Xerxes and Cyrus. Those seem to be, if not forgotten, at least very misty. Mm-hmm. But he says, okay, there was a time we were doing really well. Look at all these great reliefs and sculptures and lost palaces. We could do this again. Let's do this. Which, yeah, people, like, we love to romanticize the past, right? Yeah, exactly. He's trying to go back to the good old days, which never existed, but the good old days. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so as we saw, he tried to found new temples and he carved inscriptions in old Achaemenid places, such as Nakshadostam, to make sure that everybody sees the connection. Everybody knows that, okay, everybody in Persia, look, this is what we're trying to do again. We're not going to be anyone's vassals anymore. We're taking charge now. And also, it's quite interesting that this theme of revenge against Alexander matches up well with the Roman emperor's imitation of Alexander under Caracalla. Mm. who was, you know, massive Alexander fanboy, and also his successor, which is currently ruling in Rome, an emperor called Alexander Severus. So mm. there's a nice clear parallel there where they're saying that the Roman king Alexander, we're going to try and take revenge against him. Mm. I see, yeah. Now, another very interesting element about Ardashir's reign and the Sassanids in general which we talked about a little bit last week with Plumas, mm-hmm. is that Ardashir focuses on Mazdaism as a state-sponsored religion. So in the past, we had some religious inscriptions under the Achaemenids, but we didn't really hear much about religion under the Parthians at all. Like, we heard mm-hmm. about them sponsoring Jewish people a little bit, but, you know... We didn't hear of the king doing anything especially yeah, religiously important. really get into that. Usually it was like, yeah, you guys do whatever. Yeah, pretty much. Religion wasn't a big part of the uh, identity of the empire. Yes. Or the unifying identity of the empire. Yeah. Now, not anymore. Because Ardashir commissioned several reliefs showing Ahura Mazda granting him the right to rule. He also found several fire temples and showed a special interest in Mazdan literature. As according to some tradition, which probably was given to him by his descendants, he asked the head judge of the empire to compile a list of canonical Zoroastrian texts to go into the Avesta, which is the Mazdian holy text. So they're compiling Mm. all these traditions into an actual book that you can read and say, no, it says here that you're wrong because these reasons. Mm -hmm. And we're told by a later Islamic historian, al-Masudi, that Ardashir said this about the relationship between church and state. He said, Know that the religion and the monarchy are two siblings, neither of which can exist without the other. The religion sustains the monarchy, and the monarchy protects the religion. That which lacks sustenance and support must perish, and that which has no protector will pass away. 
So really trying to go strong for this. And if you remember, one of the origins for the Sassanid family is that they were originally the guardians of a fire temple. So presumably this spirit is being carried on by Ardashir now that he's in charge of the whole empire. The empire now has a parallel religious government where each region is assigned to a mobad, which you could roughly identify as a bishop in a Christian tradition. And all these report to the Mobadan Mobad, which is essentially, you could translate as the priest of priests, who reports mm-hmm. to the king of kings. Mm-hmm. And Makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. So this shows a sort of symbiotic relationship between these two forms of government, although always this Mobadan Mobad is nominated by the king. And it's likely that these positions existed before Ardashir took over, but he's now formalizing it and making sure that the state backs it and controls everything. Although, can you think of a downside for this serial? Uh, several. I mean, I'm <laughs> Very not a good. fan of, you know, mixing politics and religion and having leaders report to, like, a singular, you know... It's a lot of concentrating power on one person. So things can go south really quickly, depending on who that person is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is sort of the... Ardashir is trying to say that we want also religious power in the king. We want more Mm. control because the Parthians didn't have control and look how they ended up. (laughs) Yeah. Well. And the problem is that what happens if you're not Mazdian? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Or if you're not orthodox, because it looks like right now, in this time, there wasn't one Mazdian canon. There were just many local traditions. Mm -hmm. And what happens if you're not part of the canon tradition? Well, you're excluded. Yep. In particular, the Jewish people who had been giving significant roles in the west of the empire. Well, they now lose a lot of the sponsorship because they're seen as enemies. Yeah. So... That's not great. We'll see how this evolves, Serial, because... Mild spoilers, Christianity exists. Uh, What will happen then? (laughs) Who knows? It's going to be a real thorn in our side. And, um, yeah, regarding iconography, Ardashir shows himself as a devout Mazdian in all his coinage, and his early coins show him with the Parthian crown from early days of the Empire. Mm -hmm. So remember the one that Mithridates the first and second had all that Ooh, okay, time ago yeah. so really yeah really pulling from like not even the history but at this point just mythology yeah it's just trying to say look i am king mm-hmm. i am good king look at this trust me but interestingly enough Ardashir inaugurates one of the most amazing things that i enjoy and i love about the sassanids is their extremely elaborate crowns which I will show you, and we will be rating all their crowns. They are I good. Excited. I am very excited about this. And yeah. he inaugurates this style where the hair is arranged in a sort of poof above the head in a globe, uh-huh. which is right. covered yeah. in colorful silk. Cool. So I'm very excited to show you the portraits of this dynasty because everybody has their own personal crown and you can tell which king is which based on their crown. They get, so that's instead good. of a... A logo or something, they get their own crown design. Yeah, basically. Everybody, at the start of their reign, they get to have their own nice, cool crown. You get to figure out what you're going to look like. (laughs) Signature hairstyle. Yeah. 
Also, the coins are quite interesting because unlike the Roman coins, which in this period are becoming less and less valuable because the Roman Empire is entering a bit of a crisis period, Ardashir and his successors made a point to have coins with a constant silver content. Hmm. Oh, the Romans will reach a point where their coins are like 10% silver. The Sassanids will always have 95% silver. Always. Right, which means their coin is going to be worth yes. more. And this is this is how money starts. This is how like inflation is a thing and how like comparing different coins is a thing and the gold standard in the future and all of that. Yeah, and also they're just trying to point out that they are more legitimate than the Romans because the Romans are paying you with scrap metal. We yeah. can always pay you with silver. Look yeah, at us. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, at some point, like, money just becomes symbolic, right? Because, like, it's no longer about oh, the yeah, content definitely. of a precious metal that is, like, valued. Which, you know, what we put value in is really mm-hmm. more or less arbitrary. You can't do that much with silver or gold regarding, like, I guess you can use it for medicine. But apart from that, it, it doesn't really have any other intrinsic... Yeah, exactly. Like... <laughs> As opposed to like, oh, if you are you going to use it? Yeah, like, what are you going to use that metal for if you were to take it out of the money, right? Yeah. And use it. So if it were, like, iron for your weapons, or if it were, like, silicon for your electronics, yeah. same, same thing. Or if you pay with salt, for example, which, yeah, very valuable because you actually need it to preserve food. Yeah, that's quite good. Which is something that everyone needs yeah so it's interesting that like at some point we ended up like just assigning a value to money regardless of the content whereas here the fact that it actually still has a valuable metal in it it speaks more for the for the value of the money like i'm i'm explaining myself so terribly but i'm like yeah it's interesting that this is the point where we're right now where the Romans are like, yeah, technically our money is worthless because there's less of content of the yeah, actual valuable metal in it. Essentially, we saw this with the start of money under Cyrus, essentially, mm-hmm. where, you know, the point of a coin is that it's basically the state saying, we guarantee that this is this much gold. Yep, yep. You can trust us. And there was a whole thing about like people weighing coins to see if they're actually yeah, what, exactly. what they said it would be. Because of course it started really early where like you would replace part of the value of that coin, like part of the weight of that coin with some other metal that is not that valuable. Yeah, which is why in the crisis of the third century with the Romans, you have people hoarding older coins which actually have a silver mm-hmm. content and then refusing to use the modern coins that are just mainly scrap metal, and they're worth nothing. I mean, the Romans are trying to say they're worth something, but everybody says, well, no, your guarantees mean nothing here. But yeah, speaking of coins again, Ardashir is also the first to mint gold coins since Achaemenid times. So again, we're showing that the economy is doing really well, and we are marking that we are doing well, that we Mm -hmm. are powerful and everything is strong. The economy was probably doing really well due to a series of projects that were undertaken by Ardashir. He had started several irrigation projects and dams in Mesopotamia, which increased the population across the empire by making sure there's more food and more availability of that. 
He also founded several ports in the Persian Gulf, making trade much easier and more profitable. And also just because it's fun, there are some fun epic stories in the Shahnameh about Ardashir where he kills not one, but two dragons. So that's Ooh. cool. Well, that's what I'm interested to hear. Yes. That is going to be one of our next Patreon <laughs> options. Nice. The Shahnameh version of Ardashir. But Serial, who has been quiet for too long? Who must we worry about? Is it the Romans? Yes, it is. Uh... Because the Romans had recently pushed into Mesopotamia. And, well, Ardashir thinks we should take back that bit of Mesopotamia. And if we reach the Mediterranean, so be it. So it looks like, according to some sources, that Ardashir officially demanded that the Roman emperor hand over all the lands that the Achaemenids used to own. Although it's more likely that this is propaganda rather than a realistic goal. Or maybe it's just the Romans putting words in his mouth saying that, oh, look, the Persians are back, the Persians are back. So who knows? But anyway, Ardashir managed to invade Roman-occupied Mesopotamia, besiege the city of Nisibis, while his cavalry raided Cappadocia and Syria. The Romans then tried to get the Assassins to back down by reminding Ardashir of the victories of Augustus, Trajan, Varus, and Severus, saying, hey, we've sacked Tesiphon four times in the last hundred years. We'll come Don't and do make it again. Us do it again. Yeah. yeah. Don't make us come over there. But Ardashir said, You're free to try. Come <laughs> at me, bro. And so Emperor Alexander Severus had to prepare a counterattack. Once the Roman Emperor got to Antioch, he made a half hearted attempt at peace, but this was refused by Ardashir once more. And Ardashir then sent 400 tall, well dressed men as his envoys to the Romans. Yes, you do. Yes. And these men ordered the Roman emperor to withdraw back to Europe and give back all the rest of the lands to Ardashir. So go back to your own continent. This is mm. ours. Bye. The Romans responded very politely by capturing and enslaving the envoys. Of course. Which is not something you do with messengers. Don't do yeah. that. It's not their fault. Yeah. It's hard enough to have to deliver messages like across the globe. Yeah, no, it's not fun. There were 400 of them. You could let a few go home. But, no. mm -hmm. but yeah, so the two empires finally go to war. And we don't have many details, but we know that the Romans had to suppress a mutiny among their men. And apparently a group of soldiers declared two new emperors, which didn't <laughs> last long. Do. But this is the start of a trend among the Romans that we will see. But yeah, it looks like other soldiers also just deserted to Ardashir and helped out raiding the countryside. So the Romans aren't doing great. In the end, it looks like nobody made any massive gains. But the Romans definitely didn't follow through with their threat. Mm -hmm. Because there was a Roman attack through Armenia that was somewhat successful in raiding bits of Media. Although they lost a lot of men returning through the Armenian mountains in bad season. And the Roman emperor's force in northern Mesopotamia didn't see combat, but was absolutely decimated by malaria. Oh, well. And finally, the Romans tried to attack Tesiphon. They attacked Mesopotamia directly. And this force was entirely repelled. We're told that the Roman army, which was made up mainly of infantry, was surrounded by Sassanid cavalry, was shot full of arrows until the entire army was destroyed. Yeah. Dang. So, 
not this time. <laughs> You'll take Tessafon from our cold, dead hands. Yeah. In the end, this was declared as a status quo peace. They decided, okay, fine. We'll just keep the borders as they were before. No more fighting. Now, this was proclaimed as a great victory by the Romans, who didn't gain anything and just got raids. So that wasn't good. Hmm. But it doesn't sound like it was the ideal outcome from Ardashir, who probably hoped for more since this war isn't really mentioned in Eastern sources. We're just, hmm. it's not a thing that happened. It was either much smaller compared to the actual conquest of the empire, which to be fair, mm -hmm. you did conquer a whole empire. A small border yeah. war won't do anything. But, you know, presumably he had hoped to gain more lands and hadn't done so. So mm. he's just biding his time. Ignored. First contact. We'll see what happens. There wasn't really a formal peace treaty since the Romans had to deal with the Danube region and Ardashir had plans in the east. But in any case, when the fighting stopped, the most important change was that of Hatra. Because seeing the more direct control that Ardashir was imposing on the semi-independent regions... Hatra decided to conditionally side with the Romans in exchange for maintaining their privileges. So they're switching sides. Hmm. But there is great news from the Roman serial. It's oh. amazing news. They've entered the book chapter titled Crisis of the Third Century. Oh boy. Because Alexander <laughs> Severus was murdered and the Romans fall into a crisis of legitimacy that will last for the next 80 years. Time to wreck them. Yes. So at this point, since there was no formal treaty of peace, Ardashir attacks the Roman territories. He captures Caere and Nisibis. And after a long and difficult siege of at least two years, he finally captures Hatra. Hatra falls at last mm. for the first time we've seen it. And Ardashir decides that it resisted so much that it is worth destroying it, raising it to the ground and making sure nobody ever uses it again. Because mm. it was hard enough. We want to send a sign. That, yeah, anybody still siding with the Parthian side should give up. And once he captured Nisibis and Carrhae, he used these fortified cities as a base of operations against Roman Mesopotamia, trying to re-expand the empire there and actually get this war started. And yeah, this is when Ardashir starts to think about the succession a little bit, because he's getting on in years, he's been ruling for a while... He wants to make sure that the empire he started doesn't fall to pieces as soon as he dies. He wants to make sure it is nice and clear. So he takes his son Shapur and crowns him as co-king on the 12th of April, 240. So Shapur is now co-king with his father, making sure that any transition mm -hmm. of power will be nice and direct. Yep. Nice. We love that. Yeah. And it looks like... Shapur was the one who led these new attacks into Roman territory and was the one who actually conquered Hatra for the first time. But that'll be a story for next episode where I'll tell you what happened there. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. There are also some scholars who suggest that Ardashir fully abdicated to his son at this point, while others believe that they just co-ruled for a while. So mm -hmm. we'll see how it goes. But before kicking the bucket... <laughs> Ardashir, according to the Shahnameh, gave his son the following advice. He told him that the throne is threatened by three things. An unjust king, the promotion of sycophants, and the use of wealth for personal glory. So he recommends that Shapur be generous, 
control his anger, and seek sage advice. That's good. Also, interestingly enough, he tells Shapur not to go hunting when he's been drinking because that's a recipe for trouble. Which, fair fair enough. There we go. And Ardashir also ends up leaving a last prophecy that he says that in 500 years, his descendants will forget these recommendations and the empire will fall at last. I mean, it's pretty wise to just assume that like this will be the downfall because this technically usually tends to. Yeah. We will see. Serial, at the end of the podcast, we'll see if Ardashir's prophecy came true, if the empire fell because people became messy. Interesting. All right. So with this advice given, in February of 242, we're told that Ardashir died peacefully, leaving peace, justice, and security to his new empire and his nice heir, Shapur, who we will cover next time. But for now, Ardashir has made the Sassanid Empire. Let's see how it continues for the next 400 years. So, Serial, what is your impression of the first Sassanid? How do you rate him just qualitatively compared to past kings we've had? Do you think he's done a good job? That was really cool. And also a lot, and I'm going to have to re-listen to this episode <laughs> to, like, actually, like, try and remember everything that's happened. Because it's hard when there's a lot of politics regarding, like, oh, battles and conquest of different territories. And I keep, like, you know, it's hard to keep track of for me without comparing it immediately to a map or to, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm going to have to re-listen and make sure that, like, I... Yeah. remember everything usually when there's lots of change of territory dear listeners you can go on the website or in the show notes and you will find a map that i've put up just because mm-hmm. it's easier to understand yes. things when you we look do, at exactly it. like we do have the resources and we will have those ready for you it's just hard for me while just listening yeah but that was really cool i mean there was so much there was so much going on I am looking forward to rating him so we can go over the things again and I can make a better picture. (laughs) That was awesome. Nice. Okay, so let's get started with our rating then. Our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? Just dying peacefully after having consolidated the succession and his new empire. You know, good. That's the way I want to (laughs) go. Mm-hmm. That sounds positive. Yep. Like, it's not terribly exciting, but... Yeah, it's not, you know, like, a super good job. exciting death, but it was like, oh, wow. You got, like... You did it. <laughs> you got a good grade at everything, yes. my man. I don't think getting a good grade at dying is a thing, but, like, if there was, <laughs> you'd get that. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Again, it's not terribly exciting, but we know that he died peacefully. We know that he died securely. I'd give him, yeah. like, a two, honestly. Because he did good. Yeah. It's not, not an exciting not terrible, death, sadly. But, yeah. but yeah. like, it is cool. Yeah, so with a two and a two, we get a two out of ten for final moments. Our next category is battle hardness. How good was he at war and fighting? Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk He about... was. He was a thing. Yeah, yeah he did a for good sure. thing. So let's start with... The beginning. So he started out with one tiny fort. He took over a bunch of areas in Persia. He managed to 
become king of Persia at last. That wasn't terribly mm-hmm. military, but, you know, partially. He then mm-hmm. conquered Elamis, Persia, and bits of central Iran. Then he met the numerically superior Parthian army under Artabanus. <laughs> yeah. Managed to utterly destroy it, kill Artabanus yeah. personally, according to the stories. Which if is we're very to believe good. them, sure. According to the stories and the rock relief he had commissioned. So yes. that's nice. Because that's what you do, you know, you hype yourself up when you're yeah, you the should. ruler. So he does all that. Then he conquers the west of the empire, defeats Volagasis VI, and conquers all that area. Then he goes all the way to the east, where he conquers the Indo-Parthians, and he makes the Kushan Empire his subject, which is very impressive since they've been a terrifying threat for the past hundred years. He then returns west. West, he finds that the Armenians have invaded. He pushes them back to Armenia. He doesn't manage to conquer Armenia, but, you know, he needs time to consolidate the new empire he is creating. Then afterwards, he fights a bit with the Romans. He raids into Roman land, captures a few fortified cities. He is slightly raided from Armenia into Media. It's not a terrible downside. He wasn't there personally, but, Mm. you know, a small defeat. And then he utterly destroys the Roman army that was trying to take Tessaphon again. That's great. Good. We haven't destroyed a Roman army in a while. It's always fun to have those. And then once the Roman emperor Alexander dies, he just manages to take Nisibis, conquers Hatra, which had not been conquered before by anyone, and manages to start directing attacks deeper into Roman lands when he dies. Hmm. So that is a good CV. That is a good career militarily. Because he's displayed personal fighting, which is always fun. He has displayed great skills just militarily. He has conquered an empire for himself. He has had other kingdoms subject to him. So that's very good. I think my starting point for my reasoning is a 9. I don't think a 10 because it's not flawless. It's not that he's never stopped any time. You know, he does a very good job, but it's not flawless. I think I'm between an 8 and a 9. I'm trying to think about Hmm. what exactly he deserves. Why would you take points off? Let's see. Like, how many points do you think? So, his main downsides are that he doesn't conquer Armenia. And that he doesn't conquer more Roman land. But, in his defense, he had already conquered one empire. (laughs) And he needed to consolidate it. So, you know, he could have pulled an Alexander the Great and tried to overextend himself and see the empire collapse. But he decided to just stay back, control his gains, make sure everything was secure before actually going off. So... I feel like that's worth of a nine. I mean, how many people get to conquer a full empire? What are your thoughts, Ariel? Yeah, I feel like taking more points off would be unfair. Yeah. Because that was pretty impressive. So I think a nine makes more sense than an eight. Yeah, fair enough. So I'll have a nine. You can have a nine as well. So with a nine and a nine, we get an 18 out of 20 for battle hardness, which is tied for fourth place. For as highest score. So he is matching Darius the Great. Yeah, he's matching Darius the Great, which is, you know, good. When you're able to say that, that is a good thing. Yes. So, okay, very nice. 
Our next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulations? We don't have too much. He seems to be very by the books, but there is the matter of his brother Shapur dying mysteriously when a brick fell on his head. Yeah. That's that was suspicious. Sure that it happened. You know, could happen, but you know, questionable. Otherwise, he then scheminess. Yeah, otherwise, it's it's not really schemy, but he has a lot of things tying him to the Achaemenids and past dynasties, but I don't consider that schemy. I feel like that's more of an Aaron Shine sort of thing where he actually is trying to do things. He's not orchestrating a vast plot or anything. He's just doing stuff. So I'd give him a two points for potentially killing his brother at a very convenient moment. So, yeah, that's my thought. How about you? It wasn't that... I don't know. Why did you take points off? Not just because there isn't that much, just because yeah. I gave him points because of the possible murder of his brother. Yeah, oh, yeah like, yeah. there wasn't that Like, apart from, you know, destroying the sources of the previous dynasty. But is that really scheminess? Or is it just part of his whole legitimacy project? Yeah. I mean, it is part of the legitimacy project, but it is a scheme way to do it. We essentially, like, that's also what Darius the Great did. Rewriting all of it wasn't to a higher extent, like it was, you know, yeah, much more. But okay, yeah, you have convinced me to go up for me. It would fall into it, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that, but he does scrape Parthian history from the books, he makes sure that this is a new empire, we're starting with this, we can keep Mm -hmm. the old myths from the old Achaemenid days because they're basically mythical at this point. But the Parthians, we won't know about them anymore. We won't sing their stories anymore. This is the end. And yeah, also, scheminess, another thing that is potentially worth, like, half a point or something. He establishes the state religion as the second arm of the empire to further consolidate authority. I don't know if you want to consider that a scheme or just political operation, but... It's not... It is I don't think does. that's that scheme. Well... I don't know. Maybe slightly towards scheminess, but not... Yeah. That's also a political operation. I'd say you've talked me up to a four for scheminess. Yes. Yes, that sounds... You agree? Correct. I wouldn't go higher than a four, though. No. But I do think there are some things that, you know... Yeah. So with a four to four, he gets an eight out of 20 for scheminess. Our next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? He did several things. He definitely killed a bunch of his brothers due to a potential plot. That's something that happened. Uh Uh-huh, yep. He is cancelling a previous dynasty. That's intense. Mm -hmm. He is sort of introducing this new religious discrimination now. It's essentially, that's what it is. He is saying the state and the religion are the two siblings that govern the universe. They need to govern together. If you're not with the religion, you are not with the state. Mm -hmm. Get with the program. So that's pretty shocking. That has its effect. What else does he do? Does he... He raises Hatra to the ground after it resisted him? That's a bit. He exterminates the nobles who resist him. (laughs) That's a thing. Is it shocking, though? It's a little bit shocking. With the nobles, I think, yeah. 
Yeah. I feel like, you know, he didn't have to raise a city to the ground and Yeah, kill all yeah, its no, that's true. Just because it was hard to conquer, like Yeah. Like it makes sense strategically, but it's also, you know It's it's awful, unpleasant. It? <laughs> yeah. So he does all that and um shocking <laughs> I don't know if you want to put this is going to be in face of faces, but I don't know if you want to put the relief where he is shown trampling the rival king as the head god is shown trampling. The god of chaos. That is kind of... That goes hard. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is good. <laughs> that is strong. It's interesting because it's not a common thing, like you said. No, and he's also inaugurating a whole new series of reliefs. The yeah. first half of the Sassanid Empire will do a lot with rock reliefs, which will also go very hard. The next one, I think, is my favorite. But we'll find out. So yeah, shock factor. What are you thinking, Serial? Maybe like a th- three or four. So like one point for the city, one point for the nobles, one point for the art. Mm-hmm. One for the brother killing? Yes, and one for the brother killing. I was like, I'm forgetting one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Four for that shock factor. I would... I'm actually going to go for a five, adding to the mm-hmm. fact that he's the first non-Arsakid to rebel and win true because before we've had pretenders we've had rival kings but they've always been our sackids and now there's somebody from a new dynasty and he has done it you know he already just to start with he had the attributes to be able to declare himself king of kings not just independent no he is king of kings now Mm -hmm. so yeah i think i'll go for a five are you sticking with a four or a five I think I'll stick with a four. Yeah. Fair enough. So with a five and a four, he gets a nine out of 20 for shock factor. Our next category is Aaron Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular? Well, let's list his accomplishments, shall we? <laughs> well, let me get my list. Yes, let me get my notebook. So Ardashir, he has conquered an empire. That's impressive. That's always surprising. He has stopped a civil war. There are no civil war after him. He destroys the Parthian civil war, makes sure he's in charge. He basically fights Mesopotamia to re-enter it into the empire since it was kind of lost due to Fulagasis VI mm-hmm. being in control. He then marches to the east, consolidates the eastern border, vassalizes the Kushan Empire, who had been a massive threat so far. And now it's just ours. I mean, it's not ours, but it's close enough. It's paying us tribute. He then fights back with the Romans with quite some success. He destroys a Roman army. He conquers some Roman cities in the western border. He manages to take the northern coast of Arabia to secure the Persian Gulf. He builds a bunch of cities to urbanize the empire. He refounds the city of Seleucia as Veardashir. He centralizes the empire. He makes sure that the local vassal kings are absorbed if they're no longer necessary. And he assigns non-hereditary royal titles to his sons so that they may govern the empire in his place. He centralizes state authority by using the arm of religion as a thing. He seems to be going towards the direction of picking an orthodox Mazdian religion as opposed to the many varieties that were there previously. 
He sponsors a lot of dams and agriculture and irrigation projects so that the population of the empire grows and, you know, things become more stable since Mesopotamia has been raided constantly for the past hundred years. We're just reestablishing it so that it works. He ensures that the dynasty will continue. He creates a strong base of propaganda saying, this is why we're connected. This is why we're important. Mm -hmm. This is why we'll go on for centuries. He seems to be a just and equitable ruler from what we can tell. Yes, it's all presumably him telling us this, but he is saying that he will act with justice and follow wise advice and do all that. And that's why he won. That's why he is now king of kings. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, he co-rules with his son and heir for two years, making sure that the succession will be smooth, there will be no problems passing to his son, it'll just continue on as if nothing had happened. So all that is very, very impressive. On the downside... What? Uh... <laughs> uh <laughs> on the downside, uh -huh. he could have done more against the Romans. Yeah, we could have always done more against the Romans. True. Listen. And Armenia remains our sacked. And now Armenia is more on the Roman side because they no longer have a friendly dynasty in Iran. But to be fair, I don't think we can blame him for that. Yeah, no. I don't know what more you would want from Ardashir. He has created an empire, he's expanded his borders, increased the prosperity, he's minted excellent coins, he's minted gold coins for the first time in 500 mm -hmm. years. The economy is doing very well. Everybody seems to be much better off under Ardashir, unless you're a religious minority, but then mm, again, yeah. that is empowering the state, so the empire is doing better for it. Like, that goes into shock factor, but... Yeah. You know, as Eren Shine, the empire is now stronger and more centralized than it was before, and yeah, the yeah. Parthians were being tolerant, but it didn't really work out for them. Yeah. I am, um, as you know personally much more of a fan of religious freedom and separating yes, uh, religious identity from like a state but for this particular period like yeah if you compare it that way the parthians did not have this and now they do have it and it seems to like have brought everything together and made it easier to consolidate yeah so you know we will see right in the future the that it also has its own problems yeah, of course. <laughs> we will definitely see that it has problems. It comes with a whole new set of problems that the ideal wasn't form there before government. because it wasn't a thing before. Yeah, so. but for now, Empire is strong, stable, and equitable. Mm. I don't know why not give him a 10. Can you think of any reason? I mean, if we don't give it to him... Because it's not that he's just <laughs> like, conquered who the do we give he's it to? done all the reforms. I don't know what more you would want from this man. He's secured yeah. the succession, reformed the empire, expanded his borders. What else? What else should a good king do? He's brought prosperity. I feel like a 10 is all I can give. Are you matching? I, yeah, or are you going for I, a 9? Okay, 10. No, I, I like it. Yeah. So with a 10 and a 10, he gets a 20 out of 20 for Eren Shine, reaching the august company of... Cyrus the Great, Darius the Great, Mithridates the Great, 
Not yeah, sure it, why he isn't called Ardashir the Great, but we can call him that. Be. Yeah, I am making it canon right now because yeah, t- you know this is how things work in yeah. the real world. The other Ardashirs <laughs> aren't as good. He definitely deserves to be called Ardashir the Great. Yeah, there we go. And our next category is face of faces. What do you think this man looked like? Well, and for face of faces, I have a quote from the Shaname about what he looks like. Do you want to hear? Yes, actually, that would be great. Yes. Then I have something to go off of. Yes, Ferdosi says that his face and manner were such that you'd say the heavens themselves shone with their borrowed light. Wow. So, handsome Pretty dude. Boyd. Yes. And yeah, so now I'm curious to see what... I'm wondering, for the assassin portraits, do you want to see the crown first before the portrait, or do you want to see it at the rating? Because I have a list of all the crowns with their pictures. Yeah, I feel like I should incorporate the crown into my portrait because if it's yeah. such a symbol of like who he is. Yeah, that's fair. Then enough. I should like probably and it's not like I haven't asked you before about like what people look like because yeah, I didn't sure. really know what to draw. So. It's not as easy as just being like, Oh yeah, generic this. I always think of like how Jamie in Totalis Rankium <laughs> just makes the doodles however he thinks that the person might look. But I'm like, with the romance <laughs> yeah, they always have like kind of the same vibe, right? Yeah, fair enough. But I am also not as familiar with. Well, now I am, right? <laughs> we've done like yeah, you know, we've done a, a we've few done, dynasties, like, dozens of hours. Yeah, but and I feel like also the fashion hasn't changed that much, which is always interesting to me. That like for so many years, the royal regalia, the, how they're represented, yes. tends to be kind of similar, which is you know. But yeah, so since I've asked. For guidance before, I don't see why not. I would like to Very have good. some sort of thing to go off of. Okay, so Sarah has finished Done. their drawing. Let me pick it up and I'll describe it to you all. Ooh, oh, I love the style. That's, ooh, ooh, nice. Yeah. Very good. This so, horse of death. Yes, that is a very intense horse. So yeah, what we have, center stage is a massive horse. It's a dark horse with a white mane and flames out of its eyes. (laughs) It's rearing up one of its hooves to crunch on the skulls of Ardashir's enemies. And riding upon this horse is Ardashir himself, with his glorious crown shining with divine light because he is the anointed one. Right. Grasping a sword in his left hand, ready to destroy all of his enemies. So, thank you, Serial. This is very nice. You're welcome. (laughs) If anybody wants to see these, you can go on Discord if you're a patron, or you can go in the episode notes down below, or you can go on our website and look for Serial's portrait gallery. And now let me show Serial what he actually looked like, and we will have a bit of art. This will all be on the website. But, okay, I'll show Serial what he's being rated on, and then we can look at other art. So, this is what he's being rated on. Ooh, ah, oh, that's so cool. Yes. It gives me centaur vibes, I think, because it is very the horses yeah. are so small compared to the people that like it just feels like it's part of their body. Yeah, also of... just to give you a sense of scale of this, a person is the length of the horse's leg. Ooh, wow. These are big reliefs. Oh, that's gigantic. <laughs> yes. That's so cool. Okay, so it's a relief of two warriors on horseback and i don't know if one of them is like handing a diadem to the other yes so or 
Yes. Just out of curiosity, does the one to the right remind you of any past rulers? I... <laughs> I was gonna say that it gives me Gilgamesh vibes, but, like, that's just because of my own Gilgamesh headcanon. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Should it? I mean, the crown... Let me check my own drawings. Mostly the shape of the beard, I think, is the most... Yeah. Shape of the beard and the hair is probably the most emphasized one. I mean, it's very particular, but I can't remember right now who it should be. This is basically the generic Achaemenid king, which is in, in the tombs all around. Okay, it's I thought really I thought you were asking like for someone no, no, specific. No, not, not one specific. I, okay. Person, yeah, no, yeah, no, of the, course yeah. it's the Achaemenids. Like that's yeah. what I'm saying. I've drawn this so many times. Yeah. So to the right, you have Ahura Mazda, that is handing over this ring. Right. representing the right to rule to Ardashir, who's there to the left, with his big crown with a big poof yes. of hair and silk there. They're both on horseback, and you can see that under the hooves of Ardashir's horse, we have Artabanus, the last Parthian king. Right. That and is... under the hooves Oof. of Ahura Mazda, we have Ariman, just there, lying, being defeated as order triumphs over so chaos. Cool. And such an interesting detail. Like, well... Yes. Wow, so wow, wow. this is very this nice. Is amazing. I like it a lot. It's great. I love this. And then yeah, here's just to contrast with the Parthians, Even the a coin, coin of cool. Ardashir. Yeah, it's much more figurative. Like it's much more accurate to what a person might look like. Yeah, it's not a still a little bit of a, a stylization, but like not in any way as much as before. Yeah. So this is the coin. And then we also have this is another relief, which I didn't use as his reference relief because it's a bit Ooh. harder to see. Yeah. But you can see Ardashir to the left on an armored horse. You can see the armored links in it. And with his spear, he is unhorsing Ardashir and killing him in battle. That is so cool. Yeah, not Ardashir, so Artabanus like, and killing him in battle. Yes, yes. These are so amazing. I love these. Yes. Welcome to the new age, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I have, love that we, have we finally art. have art from the time. And, <laughs> yes, oh. at last. And not That's like so the cool. relief by Guitarzis the second that was just eroded to nothing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so sad. Dear listeners, go to our webpage or to, I don't know if you put these on Discord, but definitely just go to our webpage and take a I look at these. I can add them to Discord, yeah. Because they're amazing. I'm not even going to like stop and describe. I mean, I can describe them just for those of you who might not be able to take a look, but they really are worth checking them out yourselves. And this other relief is a bit more eroded, but yeah, you can see the armor on the horse and how the horse's front legs are up in the air leaping. And Ardashir has like curly hair blowing in the wind and an armor, like chain mail almost on his arm. I don't know if it's just like like the texture of the fabric or like what it is. And then like a plate over his torso and it's just holding a spear and throwing off the horse. um, Artabanus. Artabanus. And their names are so similar. I sometimes yeah, it's unfortunate. Both um, A names. And Artabanus is like being toppled off his horse, also wearing a helmet, wearing armor. It's it's really really cool. Very dynamic scene overall. Yeah, you can see them. He's just flying off his horse and just being thrown off, which is very cool. So yeah, this is what Artashir looks like. What is your rating of this portrait? A 10. Like, this is... I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like... Come on. 
It's mostly because I know one that's coming that is my favorite, but... Well, then th- that can get another 10. Yeah. But this one deserves a 10. Yeah, I feel we like have the... so many. They are so cool. And they are contemporary of the period. Yeah, this is actually him commissioning so it. And it doesn't get better than this. I'm sorry. They're also massive, which is just so huge. Like, in a picture, you don't realize it. But you should look up a picture of this with a crowd in front of it. And you see that, like, oh, the people are tiny. <laughs> These sculptures are enormous. So I think a 10 is perfectly justified, perfectly well-earned. So with a 10 and a 10, we get a 5 out of 5 for Face of Faces being our top, together with Antiochus the Great, Mithridates the First, Seleucus Nicator, Alexander the Great. So, a bunch of good faces there. Our next category is lengthiness. How long do you think this man reigned? This is from when he became king of Persia and thus entered in the podcast to when he finally, you know, when he died. I will say between 20 and 30 years. Close. He ruled 30 years. Okay, well, so the upper upper spectrum. Upper upper league. So he ruled from 212 to 242, giving him a grand total of 30 years. Which, divided by 10, gives us a 3 out of 5 for lengthiness. And that brings us to the final score, which is a grand total of 65 out of 100, making him the 5th highest rated King of Kings, just at 0.8 points behind Seleucus I. Presumably because Seleucus was a tiny bit more schemy. But Ardashir has definitely done an amazing job right here. He's just been very impressive right now. And that leads us to the final question, which is to say, is he glorious enough? Is he relief enough? Is he reformer enough to be called a Shahanshah, or is he just a Shahandah? Of course he's a Shahanshah. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, there, there's no discussion. I mean, there. like, just like, of yeah. course he went there and whether he was legitimate or not, then he like made a case for his own legitimacy. But we don't care about that. Yeah. We care about how cool cool. and epic the person was. He created some awesome art while he was at it. So, you know, excellent stuff. And he's founded an empire that will last for 400 years. And that will be very impressive. And this is the empire that takes us to the end of this season of the podcast. So, there we are. So, congratulations, Ardashir. You can go into the Paradise Gardens. You can meet all the other empire founders, Seleucus, Mithridates... Cyrus, Cyaxares, kind of founder. And uh, also Volagastes IV and tell him that, yes, his dynasty is gone and destroyed, but at least the empire is in good hands. So that is the end of our episodes. Thank you for being with us so far. We will have Shapur the first in a couple of weeks. I'm curious, Serial, to see how you think he'll do. Will we fall back into the trap that the Parthians have had so far of a great king followed by a mediocre heir? Or will we actually keep on going strong? Well, tune in to find out. It'll be an interesting ride, definitely, no matter what. In the meantime, if you'd like to support us, there are several ways to do that. You could join us on Patreon, where you can get access to a bunch of extra episodes. We just did Chandragupta Maurya last time and Bindusara, his heir, is going to be coming up next week. So if you want to have the last week of the month with more so you think you can rule Persia, join us there and we'll 
greatly appreciate your support. If you'd rather not support us monetarily, that's fine, but we'd still appreciate if you'd give us a review on your podcast app of choice so other people know that we exist and you can spread the news to more lovely friends. Yeah, that's always helpful. And, you know, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. We hope you have a lovely week and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.